You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. We are starting a brand new series. It is called ID, A Deeper Identity, and that is the purpose for this particular section of Scripture. The writer of Ephesians wanted us to understand the depth of our identity. Did you know that there is a new crime going on in our culture? It's called identity theft. How many of you have ever been a victim of identity theft? Someone has stolen your identity. I am so sorry. There's this whole new product line of, av- of available products to protect your identity. You can't even turn on the radio or television without hearing a commercial about one of these products. Well, that's happening in the culture. It is also happening in the church. Christians are forgetting who they are. Who do you think you are? Have you ever asked somebody that? Who, who do you think you are? The way you answer that question will determine the most important things about you because people are forgetting who they are. The most famous of all people who forgot who they were was this man. <laughs> who is that? Now, if you said that's Matt Damon, you are not following the storyline, okay? (laughs) That, of course, is Jason Bourne. In the year 2002, Jason Bourne forgot who he was. You see, he was a trained CIA operative. He was a trained assassin. And he woke up from a failed mission completely unaware of who he was, and yet he figured out real quick what he could do. He could still kill a man with a rolled-up magazine or a ballpoint pen. And with this incredible activity, he, he, he didn't have an identity. Like, why do I know how to do this? And so he went on this relentless journey to discover his true identity. That should be the response of someone who doesn't know who they are. Well, there's a lot of people in this room that do not know who you are. Are. And that's why we have this particular book in the Bible. We're going to be studying it over the course of the next six months or so. We'll be done before Easter 2017, 2018, something like that. Uh, we've got a lot to cover. Now, if you just look here and just kind of take a broad look at this book, what we have here is we have six chapters. It covers how many pages in your Bible does it cover? Just, just look. It's what, four or five pages maybe in your Bible? Um, it would take you about 20 minutes to read it from the first word to the last word. There are 155 verses. There are 2,400 words. We're going to cover all of them, okay? Because this is what we do. We go verse by verse through the Scripture to understand, God, what would you say to me. Now, the book of Ephesians is probably one of the most well-recognized spots in the Scripture. I rarely preach a sermon where I don't quote or refer to something in this book. And we're going to cover it verse by verse. Uh, it, it's, it, it is so rich. It is like eating a rich cheesecake. You cannot, you have to take your time savoring every bite. One commentator that I read said this, Pound for pound, Ephesians is the most influential document 
in human history. It deserves our attention. So we're going to slow down and work our way through it verse by verse. What will we find? Why have we chosen this book? Well, it's because our theme this year is we are going deeper. And Ephesians is the vehicle for us to dig deep into our new relationship and our new identity in Christ. So in chapter 1, it's going to take us, take us deeper in our worship. In chapter 2, it's going to take us deeper into our understanding of the gospel, the central component of the Christian faith. The gospel is unpacked for us in the second chapter of Ephesians. In chapter 3, it's going to take us deeper in our love and our depth in Jesus Christ and give us an understanding of the revelation of Jesus through his word. In chapter 4, it's going to take us deep in our understanding of the purpose of the church, and it's going to challenge us from simply being an autonomous, individualistic Christian that's siloed. It's going to challenge us to come together as the church and lock arms to get stuff done that we couldn't do isolated from one another. In chapter 4, it's also going to take us deeper in our appreciation for the importance of character. Contrary to cultural opinion, character still counts. And so we're going to go deeper in the understanding of how important and essential character is in the life of a believer. Chapter 4 is also going to take us deeper in our conviction to live out our new identity in a godless culture all around us. Chapter 5 is going to take us deeper in our understanding of the significance, the relevance, the importance of marriage and family. Chapter 6 is going to take us deep in our understanding of the spiritual realm and the spiritual war that's going on right now in this room that most of us are completely unaware of. And so, in, all in favor of going deeper in the book of Ephesians? Amen. All right, let's get started. Here's the first thing we're going to say about it. New identity produces new activity. New identity produces new activity. Let's look at someone who got a new activity. Here we go. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, let's stop there. <laughs> you say, Trent, it's going to take you a long time to go through this book. Yes, it is. But we need to know who's writing the letter. Now, you know when you write a letter, you sign your name at the end, right? Well, in Bible times, they sign their name at the beginning. So Paul is the one who is authoring this particular letter. And immediately we know something. Paul is using his new identity to identify himself because Paul's old identity had another name. Anybody know? What was Paul's original name? His name was Saul. So what do we know about this figure Paul slash Saul and why does he have two identities and what's going on? Well, here's a little history about Saul. Saul was a very religious man. He knew the Hebrew scriptures, he was a biblical scholar, and he was a bit of a self-righteous, arrogant person because he thought it would please God if he would attack those who were followers of Jesus Christ. He, he was a hater of Jesus. He was a hater of those who followed Jesus. He was a hater of the church, and he wanted to do everything in his power to try to stop the church. And he failed. 
He failed. As a matter of fact, one day Jesus appeared to this guy named Saul, and he completely changed his identity. He assigned him a new name. Now you're going to go by the name Paul, and you're not going to be a blasphemer and a persecutor and a murderer anymore. You are going to get a new identity. Here's the way he identifies himself back in verse 1. Paul, an apostle. Now, there's a lot of things he could have put in that blank. He could have put Pharisee. He could have put murderer. He could have put zealous. He could have put a lot of things. The way he identified himself was an apostle of Christ Jesus. I don't know what's on your business card. What was on his business card was Paul, apostle. That's what I am. So what's an apostle? Well, um, in the general sense, an apostle is just someone who has been sent with a message. Paul had been sent from Christ Jesus with the message of Christ Jesus. But in a more specific sense, we understand if we read our New Testaments, there were originally 12 apostles, disciples who became apostles, and one of those defected. What was his name? Judas. And so later, Jesus encountered Saul on the Damascus Road. He changed his identity. He went by Paul. Now he's an apostle. An apostle is someone who likes to start stuff. An apostle is a pioneer. He's a planter. And the church was started and planted on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his apostles. It's one of the things that we're going to learn when we get to chapter 4. The church rests upon this message that was given to the apostles. Now, there are no modern-day apostles. If somebody walks up to you and gives you a business card and it says, Apostle, meh, no, no. The church does not rest on you. It rests on the original apostles that was here. Now, there, there is kind of an adjective that you could use. There, there, is an, there is an apostolic thing we do. Somebody that, that is a church planter or somebody that's a pioneer into hard areas and gets the gospel into hard areas, you might want to say that the work they're doing is kind of apostolic. But with a small a, and it's not a title, it's more of an activity. Well, that was certainly what Paul did. Paul was a preacher of this message. He was a multiplier of preachers, and he was a multiplier of churches. Paul actually planted the local church in Ephesus. He was the founding senior pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Ephesus, okay? And so he started this church. He wasn't there long. We read his history back in the book of Acts, especially chapter 19. He wasn't in Ephesus long. He raised up a group of leaders, and then he went on to plant other churches. And that got him in trouble. Paul was such a bold messenger of Jesus Christ that it landed him in prison. The Romans were not big fans of Jesus Christ or his followers. And so they were trying to smash out this message. They arrested Paul. They put him in prison. Now just think about that for a minute. If you were Paul and you had had this incredible encounter with Jesus Christ, he had hand-delivered you his message for the churches and given you the assignment, go into all the world and make disciples. And yet 
God allowed you to be arrested and put in a prison cell, and God gave you a big timeout, put you on the sideline, what would your attitude have been? Would you sat there and suck your thumb and kick rocks and be mad at God? Or would you maybe do what Paul did? You see, Paul moved at such a high rate of speed as he traveled and went and did. He was a busy dude. Apparently, God wanted some stuff to get done in Paul's life that he couldn't do while Paul was moving at such a high rate of speed. So he allowed him to sit down for a little bit. And do you know what he did while he was in there? He picked up a pen and he began to write a letter to this church that he had planted in Ephesus. And the words that he wrote while sitting in the Roman prison is what you and I are reading here today. Do you realize that if Paul had not been arrested, if Paul had not suffered persecution, if Paul had not been put in prison, we might not have the book that we're studying today, nor would we have the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, or the book of Philemon in our Bible, because Paul wrote all of the, those during the two years he sat in timeout in a Roman prison. Can you see the sovereignty of God in allowing maybe some of the suffering to be used for good. That's what God does. He redeems the hardest things that we go through. So whenever you're sitting in timeout, whenever you're going through something that you probably would not have signed up for, Paul would not have signed up for that, you might want to look for what God wants to get done in you and through you that otherwise would not get done if that circumstance had not allowed. That's what God did while Paul was sitting in prison. So we have Paul. Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In other words, Paul didn't say, I think I want to pursue a career in apostleship. No, it was something that was assigned to him. By the will of God, and then it goes on, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So let's say something about this city, Ephesus. Now, the city of Ephesus would be equivalent to what we would think of when we would think of a city like Chicago, okay? Um, world-class baseball team, um, world-class banking, world-class entertainment, world-class uh, travel, world-class industry. Ephesus was a big deal. And uh, at the time, the population of Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the world. It was probably about a quarter million people. Now, interestingly, that was one of the biggest cities back then. There are about a quarter million people that live within a 30-minute radius of this church. So, we might be living in a place kind of like Ephesus. Because it was a big city, because it was a very transient city, there were a lot of people that moved in and out. It was kind of multi multicultural. And because of that, there was a lot of sexual immorality. Prostitution was rampant. Pornography was probably rampant. As a matter of fact, there was a temple there. There was a lot of spirituality, a lot of false worship going on there. There was a temple there to the goddess Artemis or Diana, 
And part of the religious practice, part of the worship, was actually sexual immorality. This temple to Artemis was so famous, it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so Ephesus was a big deal. It was filled with political corruption because it was a Roman capital for Asia Minor. So Ephesus was the place where there was all this godless activity going on, and yet in the middle of it, God planted and grew a church. And that church was alive with believers that were teeming with faith. And Paul loved them and wanted to strengthen them and wanted their faith to go deeper. And so he wrote them this letter. And he identifies the ones in the Ephesian church. He he uses a very specific identifier. Notice, to the saints. He called the the believers, the members of the local church in Ephesus, he called them saints. Saints. A saint is simply a follower of Jesus Christ. Anyone who has received Christ as Savior and Lord, anyone who has had their heart transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have been converted, their heart has been regenerated, they've been justified, declared righteous before God, a follower of Jesus Christ is a saint. Did you know you're a saint? Did you know your husband's a saint? Say, no, I did not. (laughs) Turn to the person sitting next to you right now just so that you believe this and let them know, I am a saint. (laughs) Do that. All right, now turn back to the person that just said that and say, then act like it. (laughs) Now, do you know what just happened in this room? What just happened in this room is exactly what Paul wanted to happen in the Ephesian church. He wanted them to be identified as saints. You are a saint. So act like it. Because your new identity as a saint should produce new activity that acts like a saint. That is the purpose of the entire book of Ephesians. Paul knew how to motivate new activity by leveraging and appealing to new identity. Now, some of you are struggling with the fact that you're a saint. Now, if you came from a Roman Catholic background, you probably are very hesitant to call yourself a saint until the Pope declares that you are a saint. See, this is where we differ from our Catholic friends a little bit. You're in a Protestant church. Everybody, everybody understand that? You're in a Protestant church. So our Catholic friends, their understanding of a saint, I saw this a couple of months ago. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, everybody know, know about her? And so she, she died like 19 years ago. And Pope Francis, uh, just a couple of months ago, um, made a proclamation that we're now going to call Mother Teresa Saint Teresa of Calcutta. And so in the Catholic understanding of being a saint, there, there are some requirements to be a saint. The first requirement is this. You must, in all circumstances, be dead, okay? (laughs) There are no living saints. You cannot be a saint if you are alive. Which, if that is the proper understanding of a saint, exactly who is the Apostle Paul writing to in Ephesians? Is he writing to the the dead saints out in the graveyard next to the church? 
Or is, are there some actual living people in the church that he's writing this letter to that he expects to read his words? You know, saints are living. The Protestant, the biblical understanding of a saint is the person who is alive. And they have physical life and they have spiritual life. In the Catholic understanding of a saint, um, you, you have to perform a miracle. I mean, you have to do something that just is miraculous you pray for something it's unbelievable it just happens and then that creates like a fan club and then uh you get you die and then you get a statue and all the people pray to you and now you're expected to answer their prayers listen when when i get to heaven i'm going to be so busy doing stuff in heaven i am probably not going to be interested in working a lot for people that are praying to me down in in you know, on the earth i would just like to you, you tell tell jesus um, he's really the only one that does miraculous things anyway. So anyway, so we have some differences here. But Paul was appealing to the saints. You know what a true understanding of a saint is? Let me give you three characteristics of a biblical saint. Number one, a saint is repentant. You know, we, we, we like to laugh a little bit and leverage this identity. Sometimes we've even used it here today. Dirty, rotten sinner. You know, we we kind of say that around here. And that is your true identity before Christ. And if you are going to be a saint, if you, before you ever embrace your identity as a saint, you must embrace your identity as a sinner. But once you embrace your identity as a sinner and you bring all of that sin to Jesus Christ, he changes your identity. You are no longer a dirty, rotten sinner. You are a saint who occasionally commits dirty, rotten, sinful acts. You are not a sinner who sometimes acts like a saint. You are a saint who sometimes acts like a sinner. And so we appeal to our saintliness, or our identity as a saint, to create new activity, namely repenting of sin, because that is not who I am. Not only is a saint repentant, but secondly, a saint is humble. He understands he's not a saint because of anything he has done. He's a saint because of what God has done in Christ on the cross to change my identity. And then thirdly, a saint understands he is in process. He is not all that he is going to be. A saint understands that he has been saved by the grace of God but he also understands that he is still being saved, and one day he will be saved. You say, now wait a minute, you said three things. Which one is it? Yeah, all three. I understand that by the grace of God, I have received salvation by grace. That's called justification. That happened in the past. It's a point in time. But a saint is also being sanctified. That means that Jesus is still scrubbing off the things in me that do not look like a saint. I am being sanctified every day. And one day, future, I look forward to when I will be glorified. I will be saved completely, entirely from this body of sin. Every appetite for sin is now an appetite for God. I look forward to that day. Anybody looking forward to that day? Then you must be a saint. And so act like it. Now, why does Paul go to the trouble of calling them a saint? Paul knew that there was something in embracing your true identity that creates new activity. As a Christian, you're supposed to be doing things that are new 
as a saint that you would never dream of doing as a sinner. And so Paul understood the importance of an indicative. Write that word down, indicative. Now, unless you are an English major, you have probably forgotten your ninth grade grammar class that taught you what an indicative was. Do you remember what an indicative was? No, I do not. So, let's understand the, uh, the difference and the importance of two words, an indicative and an imperative. It is essential that you understand this because that is the structure of the entire book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians is all about indicatives. The next three chapters, chapters four through six, are all about imperatives. What's the difference? Indicatives tell me my identity, who I am. Imperatives tell me what my act Activity is supposed to be what I'm supposed to do. Indicatives, the first three chapters of Ephesians, reveals to me my objective position in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 tell me what my practice should be in Christ. Indicatives reveal who I am. I am a saint. Imperatives tell me what I should do, now act like it. You have to understand this to understand the book of Ephesians. It's an incredibly structured book, and I have to understand the difference between indicatives and imperatives. Now, how many parents in the room? How many parents? How many of you have mastered the art of imperatives? You are very skilled at telling your children what to do and what not to do. Anybody got that down? Anybody really good at that? Have you noticed how powerful a tool this is? I mean, every time you, ch you tell your children, don't do that, they immediately stand up straight. And they begin, they completely stop doing what you told them not to do. And they, say, they repent immediately, fall on their knees. You're such a good parent. Thank you so much for telling me that. I didn't know I was not supposed to do that. What's more powerful? An indicative or an imperative? Now, both are important. As a parent, we need to leverage both. But Paul understands the very important sequence that indicatives must always come before imperatives. Before I will do what I'm supposed to do, I have to know who I am am. And so Paul spends three chapters telling these saints who they are before he spends three chapters telling them what they're supposed to do. Now, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a follower, if God is not your father, if this is all new to you, thanks for being here. You came to the right place today. But you probably are not real concerned about God's indicatives or imperatives. Humanism ignores God's imperatives. You don't really care who God tells you you are. He can tell you you're a dirty, rotten sinner all day long. You say, no, I'm not, and I don't really care. That's what humanism does to your brain. 
and you really could care less about God's indicatives. You may even know what he wants to do, but you're really not all that concerned about doing it, and you're really not heeding his warnings to not do the things that he tells you not to do. That's what your life is like before Christ. But some of you have been awakened to the reality of who God is. His true identity has changed your new identity, and that new identity is producing new activity in your life. But be careful not to get the imperatives before the indicatives. Have you been in a church or maybe even in a family that shouted imperatives but ignored the indicatives? That's what religion does. And you may be thinking, if you're not a Christian, oh, I know what you want to do. You just want to shout do and, do and don't to me all the time. And that's all the Bible is, is a big list of do's and don'ts. It's just keep the rules, try to please God, do better, try harder. And if you're not careful, you will get the order backwards. Indicatives must come before imperatives. That's what the gospel does. The gospel shouts indicatives and ignites imperatives. And so before you know what you're supposed to do, you have to know who you are. Do you know who you are? You're a saint. Now act like it. That's the power of an indicative. And so as a parent, there are times that you realize the most motivational thing you can do is remind your children who they are. Have you had this conversation? Had that conversation? We are Griffiths. I am Father Griffith. You are son and daughter Griffith. We don't act like that. Why? Because we're Griffiths. And Griffiths don't do, we don't have discussions about what we're going to do on Sunday morning. We go to church. Why? Because we are Griffiths. And God says to you, you're a saint. Therefore, you're going to do some stuff. There's going to be some activity that's a part of your life. There's going to be some activity that's not going to be a part of your life. Why? Because you're a saint. God says, I am father. You are son. And that's not who we are anymore. You have a new identity that produces new activity in your life. And so Paul leverages this new identity. He appeals to their new identity to get new activity in their life. Now, there are other people that will try to assign your identity. First of all, yourself. You may be sitting here thinking, I know who I am. I am what I do. And so you may have this big resume and what are all your accomplishments. When you meet somebody new, how do you identify yourself? How do you, what questions do you ask people? Isn't that what we do? We just kind of default. We meet a new person. Hi, I'm Trent. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, Joe. What do you do? That's probably the wrong question. Better question, well, tell me, tell me who you are. That's a better question because I'm not what I do. Secondly, I am not what I know. You may know a lot of stuff, and you may be very intelligent, but you are not who you know. You are not the sum total of all that you know or what you don't know. Some of you may not be real book smart and may not have a whole lot of knowledge and a, a big IQ. That's not who you are. And, what, 
And who you are is not what you have. And it's not what you don't have. Some of you have some very impressive toys and some really nice things and a big pile of treasure. That's not, that's not your identity. Some of you have very little. Some of you have some scars and wounds. That's not your identity. That's not who you are. And so be careful who you allow to assign your identity. The devil will try to assign an identity to you. Loser. And if you accept the identity that the devil has assigned to you, you will go on a constant search looking for something to validate you. God wants to give you a new identity. And once you embrace his new identity for you, it'll change your activity. Do you know what I do every week from this pulpit? I appeal to your identity. And I say, if you are in Christ then you must obey him. And that is the sum total of the Christian life. Do you know who you are? Who do you think you are? Listen, if you really want to know who you are, understand this, your true identity is exposed in crisis. You don't even really find out who you are as long as you got a pile of money, as long as you got great friends, everything going great in relationships. It's when you lose all of that, when you lose religious freedom, that's when you find out the true identity of people that have been naming the name of Christ. And so we have to embrace, go deeper in our true identity. Here's the second thing. New identity provides new security. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are, next word, faithful. What does that word mean? Well, it means that you're a believer. It means you believe unbelievable stuff. There is a deep faith in you that is rooted in the reality of who Jesus is. You're faithful. That's what a saint is. He is full of faith. He believes, he accepts, he acknowledges who God says he is. He's embraced the reality and the identity of God himself faithful and then notice the next two words so important the most important two words in the book of ephesians are in christ in christ jesus let me tell you why those are so important they're used 12 times in this book most of them in the first chapter there are 24 other references that are variances to that. It might say in him or in the beloved. Our true identity is in Christ and it creates such stability. In chapter one, it says that we are the faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse three, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse four, he chose us in him. Verse 6, he made us accepted in the Beloved. Capital B, it's a proper name for Jesus. In the Beloved. Chapter 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 9, his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, he will unite all things in him. Verse 11, in him also we have obtained inheritance. Verse 12, we who first trusted 
in Christ. Verse 13, in whom you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do you understand your identity is rooted in Christ? It is such a significant term. Paul uses it 216 times across the 13 letters that he writes to the churches. He wants them to know their true identity in Christ. It's probably a better way of describing who we are as believers. We like to use the term Christian. Use that term. Are you a Christian? Uh, That term's used three times in the New Testament. Paul uses in Christ 216 times. Maybe a better question would be, are you in Christ? There's only two types of people. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. In the book of Romans, the Bible says, all who are in Adam die. But those who are in Christ are made alive together. You are in Adam when you are born into this world. You are in Christ when you are born again. You see, the problem with Jason Bourne is he forgot he was born. The problem with Christians is they have forgotten they're born again. See what I did there? Yeah. So we have to remember our true identity. It creates a stability in Christ. Now, it's also important that we understand this as we get on this word. Jesus Christ is used in both of the two verses that we're looking at today. Do you know what that says to me? This is not a book about me. Paul did not write the book of Ephesians, and God did not preserve it in his eternal word to make much of you. He wants us to know our true identity, so he we can make much of Christ. This book is about Jesus. And it is through our identity in Christ that our identity has significance, meaning, and value. New identity produces new stability. And then finally, new identity promises new security. Look here in verse 2. He says, Grace to you and peace from God. So he uses these two terms, grace and peace. Let's talk about those. First of all, just the term grace to you. It's an interesting term because there's no verb in it. You would expect it to say grace be to you or grace come to you. He just says grace to you. You know what that says? There is some distance between grace and you. And Paul's prayer is there would be none. It is through Jesus Christ that God's grace can get to you. Now, some of you are sitting here like, no, you, you, Trent, you don't understand. I'm not, I'm not the religious type. I'm, I'm not a Jesus person. I'm not a church person. I just, somebody twisted my arm. I got here. Um, and and I, they're graced, and God would never be gracious to me because I know the kind of person God is, and, and, and he's uh, really mad at me, and I am too bad for grace. 
And if you're thinking that right now and you're thinking about the sins that you've committed, you're thinking about the track record, the criminal record, maybe you're like Paul and you've been a hater of God and a hater of God's followers and a hater of church. And Paul is the one who is saying it's when grace comes to you that you get a new identity in Christ. It doesn't matter the identity that you've had in the past. Grace changes your identity. Grace is what gives you the promise that anyone, no matter what you've done, you can have a new identity. You can, your name can be changed from a Saul to a Paul. Your activity can be changed from hating God to loving God. There's no one in this room too bad that grace can't get to you. Now, some of you are sitting here right now and you're praying for those people. Oh, Lord Jesus, there are some really bad people in this room. I know who Trent's talking about. I want to pray right now, God, that your grace would get to them. And, and you're thinking of the wrong person. You're praying for those people that think they're too bad for grace. You ought to be praying for yourself because you think you're too good for it. That you were raised in church and you've read this book. Some of you are sitting here saying, I've studied the book of Ephesians. I've taught it. I think I've got a better outline, as a matter of fact. And, I, and, and somehow you've thought that somehow you've gotten to the level that you don't need God's grace anymore. You just are a channel of God's grace. God, just use me today as a channel of your grace. Listen, you are not the channel. You are the reservoir. And you need God's grace as much today as you did the day that you cried out for it the very first time. There's nobody in here too bad for God's grace. There is nobody in here too good for it either. We all today need the grace of God to go deeper into the identity of being in Christ. Grace promises a new identity. You see, grace supplies the desire to live according to your new identity. You don't even have a desire to be a new person. You don't even have a, an inkling of desire to do anything that God says you should do. You, you, you don't have a desire to follow any of the imperatives apart from grace. And yet God floods your heart with grace and it produces this desire to live according to my new identity. And then grace gives me the power to become the person God says I already am. The truth is, very few people in here feel like a saint. You look at your prayer life. You look at your relationship with your spouse, your marriage. You look at your, your, your desire to obey God. and like, I, I don't even think I can get that done. Can't, won't, apart from God's grace. But when the distance from God's grace and you is bridged, you can be the person God says you already are. Grace to you. And then he says peace. Peace from God. Peace is the ability to live calmly in the midst of, of chaos, crisis, and turmoil. It is a calm assurance that God can be trusted. It's the calm assurance that God is good and that God is in control. No matter what I see in the headlines, no matter who wins the presidential election, do you think that 
you know, remember, Paul is writing this in a prison. Do you, sit, do you think he's sitting in there stressing out about who the next Roman emperor is going to be? No, he's got grace. He's got peace because he's got God. Notice, peace from God. And then he identifies God. He's already identified himself, Paul, an apostle. He identifies the Ephesians, saints. And then he identifies God as what? Father. He wants you to embrace the identity of the fatherhood of God. When the father is in the home and the father is committed to the family, there is a new level of security because we know we've got a good father that's committed to providing and protecting the family. When you know the identity of the fatherhood of God, it changes your identity because if God is father, what does that make me? I'm not only a saint, I'm a child. So he wants us to know God as father, and then here's the last thing, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies himself as an apostle. He identifies the Ephesians as saints. He identifies God as the Father, and he identifies Jesus as a good moral person, a teacher, an example of love who was benevolent to all who befriended him, feathered hair, holding a sheep, a tear in his eye, olive skin. Is that the way he identified him? Then why do you identify Jesus that way? Jesus is Lord. Is that the way you identify Christ? I went to the Notre Dame-Stanford football game last night. Sorry to bring that up, but it's an illustration in the sermon, okay? I heard the name of Jesus many more times than I have heard him mentioned in church this morning. I never heard anyone use the name Jesus while identifying him as Lord. And yet that is the central issue of our identity in Christ. Will we embrace Jesus as his true identity, Lord? That means that he is to be worshiped. That means that he is to be obeyed. That means that he is to be followed. He is to be revered. And he is to be adored as Lord. Whatever he says goes. His identity changes my identity. And for all who embrace Jesus as Lord, there is a security in that, that he is providing and he is protecting no matter what we see around him. Christ is exalted over all that's going on in this world. If you live with a sense of fear and chaos and anxiety, maybe it's because you're not living according to your identity in Christ's identity as Lord. Would you like to acknowledge him as Lord today? Would you like there to be the distance between grace and you bridged, the distance between peace
peace in you bridged, it's done in Christ. Why don't we do that right now? I want to invite you very reverently and worshipfully to bow your head. In the quietness of your heart, would you right now humble yourself as a saint, understanding that on so many days, you've not acted very much like a saint. Just tell him that. And in that moment, would you acknowledge that Christ is Lord? Take your hands off of the steering wheel. In a fresh new way, give him control. There may be some of you that have never had your identity changed. You need a new identity in Christ. You're either in Adam or in Christ. Adam died as a sinner. Christ died for sinners. And if you will by faith embrace him as Lord, he will forgive, he will secure, he will save. Our pastors are here at the end of the service. If you need to come and acknowledge Christ is Lord, and even in this moment, maybe in a fresh new way, you want to get out of your seat, you want to come, get on your knees here at the altar, and just cry out for God's grace. Ask God to replace the anxiety and the fear with His peace. You have the freedom to do that. You can just pop up right now, step on a few toes as you get out, make your way down here. Don's going to lead us in a song. We're going to stand as I pray, but take this opportunity before we rush out of here to let your identity produce new activity in Christ. Why don't we stand together, heads bowed, eyes closed. If you need to come and pray, you can do that now. If you need to come talk to a pastor and have him pray for you, that's fantastic. If you want to come and acknowledge the Lordship of Christ for the very first time, this is the time to do that. Why don't we bow our heads and let's pray together. God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for grace that is available to all those who will humble themselves, express their need for new identity. And God, for all of us today, we can think of patterns and habits and we can think of activity that doesn't align with our identity. And so, God, would you begin that process today and in a fresh new way, we want to acknowledge our identity in Christ. God, would you be in the process of giving us the desire to live out that identity, giving us the power to become who you say we already are. I pray that our lives would be characterized by holiness and peace, and love, adoration, worship, obedience to Jesus as Lord. You are exalted over all. all. And God, we come for a fresh cleansing, a fresh forgiveness, a, 
and a fresh dose of grace to walk this out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.